UCB Life Issues with Paul Hammond. And as always, a very warm welcome to the Life Issues podcast. I'm Paul Hammond and this week, well, I think it's fair to say that over the last couple of years, as a society, we have been given a bit of a wake-up call when it comes to valuing and appreciating our emergency services. I think it's fair to say that we've been given a wake-up call for a lot of work environments and different services that provide for the maintenance of our everyday lives. But our emergency services, their willingness to put themselves on the front line, it does seem that over the last couple of years that has been brought into stark relief. And although there are undoubtedly individuals who, at times, bring those services into disrepute, sometimes even in extremists, our fire service, our police service, our ambulance service, the vast majority of those who are there are simply seeking to do their job to the best of their ability, but also to serve their community well and to make a meaningful difference. And as any of us who have seen one of those fly-on-the-wall documentary programmes know, they do it increasingly in the face of reduced budget, increased pressure and expectation, issues around staff retention, and the sense that the job they do seems to get more and more intense year after year. So this week, in the same way that we have looked at the calling on nurses to do their vocation, we thought we'd talk about the emergency services, what they do, why they do it, and what we can pray for those who man the front line of crisis in our nation. Joining me to talk about this today is Acting Inspector Marie Reavy. She is, well, a whole host of roles she has within the police force, but she is also the National Chair of the Christian Police Association. And it would be fair to say, Marie, that having done a few years on the Thin Blue Line, how has the role changed? Have you, have you seen a fair bit of change in your time? Yes, I um, I think I would have done. So I joined in 2003. Uh, back then, there was one green screen computer in the entire station. Uh, and now, obviously, with the changes in technology, we've got officers having tablets and smartphones. We can do fingerprint identification on the streets, take statements um, electronically, um, so from a digital perspective, there's been a massive change in the way that um, we can function in those areas has changed hugely. Um, and from a general kind of policing perspective, you know, the, the increase on safeguarding, on vulnerabilities, mental health, uh, all of these things have really increased dramatically over uh, the years as well. And, and the emphasis on uh, policing those things and bringing justice into those things and the, the transformation that we are going through and have already gone through a lot of around um, race discrimination and, and some of those issues has uh, has been really key over the last few years. So, uh, yeah, there's been quite a bit of change. Lots that remain the same. Yes, yeah, standard shoplifter always remains a standard shoplifter, but um, lots of emphasis, particularly around vulnerabilities and mental health and things like that. 
And when we, we think about the role of the police, I mean, there have been some very high-profile, very public examples of inappropriate, even criminal behaviour by some officers. And while it's true that in every profession, every community, there will always be some who who let the rest of the community down. There will always be some who behave badly and, and it would be wrong to judge or to, to, to tar everybody with the same brush and so on, all of that. But it does seem as though when those stories hit the headlines, the expectation among society towards particularly the police force is, of course, a lot higher. What does it do to morale and motivation for officers who are simply trying to do a good job and make a difference when those stories hit the news? I think it, it's really hard. It, it has a real impact. I know for myself personally, when I hear that kind of story and, and that kind of news, it, it just makes my heart sink because that's not why I joined the police. It's mm. not why I do the job that I do. You know, certainly as a Christian, I do the job that I do because I want to uphold justice. I want us to have communities that are safe. I want to see uh, crime ending and, and all of those kind of things that the majority of the police want to do. And so when we hear um, some of those bad, bad egg stories, my heart just sinks because I know it's, again, it's all police are bad, all police have done this. And, and that isn't the case. And actually there's some really rigorous um, testing and investigation that goes on to make sure that we are routing out the bad ones um, because we don't want them in the police service and, yeah. and most really you know we're giving our lives to the job it isn't it isn't something you just do and that's it and you switch off actually once you're a police officer you you're always on duty you've always got a level of responsibility uh, many of us giving up weekends and working horrible shifts running into the face of danger to protect the public and you hear something like that and you're just like oh no you know and i suppose as well programs like i mean as much fun as it was to watch and as 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 nerve-wracking as it was to watch at times programs like line of duty i mean we all intellectually know that it is a fictional account. We all intellectually know that it is, you know, it is dramatised and it doesn't bear that much relation to reality. But I suppose there is a, a fear that these sorts of things can create a false impression and that that can damage the relationship you have with the public. Yeah, I mean, I think it can. I've not actually watched any of Line of Duty, so uh, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to best uh, comment on uh, what they portray. But, um, yeah, I do think that there is a sense in general that those dramatisations and those glamorizations of uh, policing or, or any emergency service or, or profession, really, um, give a false view of what what it's actually like on the, in, on the job. Yeah. Well, joining Marie today to talk to us about the role of the emergency services, obviously thinking about fire, police and ambulance in that and that sort of context and the work that they do and the impact that the job has on them is Andrew Rag. Now, Andrew is lead chaplain for Staffordshire Fire and Rescue. He's also a community first responder. And to bring your perspective into all of this, Andrew, I have to first of all ask you, what is a community first responder? Do you, are you the guy running down the street when somebody collapses? 
Yeah, it's um, <clears throat> it was started about what fifteen years ago when Staffordshire Ambulance was an ambulance service on its own um, before it merged with West Midlands, and it's a t it's basically teams of volunteers and communities who get trained up and get respond within their local areas to emergency calls. Um, it's good training, it's, and you've got people from all sorts of backgrounds and. My background's already the health service anyway, so it wasn't too different for me. But you've got solicitors, teachers, all sorts of people who right. just give that time voluntary. Yeah. And I suppose in some ways it does then give you an insight into some of the 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 impact and some of the experiences that those you are working with as a chaplain have to face every day. I mean, just paint us a little bit of a thumbnail about your role as a chaplain to the fire and rescue service in Staffordshire? I took on the lead chaplain probably 12 months ago now because we thought it was important that we got somebody that can direct us and have an assistant down in the south of the county because obviously it's a big sort of county really. Um, but I'd had experience with the fire service before and um, it was just something that... I felt was important because frontline crews and that do get forgotten and they just, and particularly in the sort of fire brigade, might be the same in the place, I'm not sure, but it's sort of like of a macho sort of um, feeling that they don't need to talk to anybody, they don't need to, you know, everything's okay. And it was important that they had this other, sort of like a listening ear really, uh, and that's how I approached the, the role. And also I have pastoral care for a particular station, which is important. So and and what is the that. what is the response to you like? Because I, I suspect that many of us would think that in this increasingly secularized world, the idea of a chaplain, the idea of a a Christian in inverted commas minister or ministry within a community like that, I mean, is it something that is it's easy for you to connect with them, for them to connect with you, or is it a little bit awkward? It's probably not the right word, but but there's just a, a disconnect because of the because of the world in which we live. Yes, it was difficult at first. Uh, the station I look after had got two different crew watches. Uh, the first one watch was more willing to sit with us. Um, but gradually they all came round, and I made it clear it wasn't about converting firemen to religion. Yes, I'll talk to them if they want to talk about religion, or I'll just sit there like I've joined them at meal breaks and, you know, I'll just generally have a general chat. Uh, and then some of them would swear, and then they'd think, oh, I've got Padre <laughs> in, as some of them would say. And I said, don't worry, I can swear like you can. So it's not, <laughs> I'm no different. It might be that I've got a collar on or, or whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, but genuinely, it's, I think the biggest issue is not really knowing what the chaplaincy role is. Yeah. Which I still don't think the whole of the, the organisation isn't sure of yet. Um, I said, I'm not here for, you know, other than just to be, you know, build a relationship. And that's know, the thing, involved. really, isn't it? You are, like most pastoral relationships, you are creating an opportunity for people to talk, an opportunity for them to ask questions, an opportunity for them to feel supported. Whether the, how far they take that is, of course, 
up to them. You're listening to Life Issues. I'm Paul Hammond, chatting this week about the role and the work of our emergency services. With me is Marie Reavy. She is Acting Inspector Marie Reavy, to give her a proper title, who, amongst other roles, is the National Chair of the Christian Police Association, and also Andrew Ragg, who is Lead Chaplain for Staffordshire Fire and Rescue. And I wonder, before we start to talk about the nuances of the impact of the job on those who do it, I suppose many of us carry within our heads the stereotypes. I mean, firefighters fight fires, obviously. Coppers catch the bad guys, obviously. We understand what they do. But I wonder if there's more nuance to that, Marie, because I wonder if there are very important bits of the job that actually most of us will never, ever see, but are key to the difference that you and your colleagues are making in our society. Yeah, very much so. There's lots of different aspects to policing. And um, one of them is the preventative stuff, um, problem solving. We, we like, you know, we're very much around, let's try and prevent a problem from happening in the first place as much as catching the bad guys. So um, we could have, for example, prolific offender managers who work alongside uh, prolific offenders, hence the title, um, but they're there to try and support them and get them out of the offending cycle that they're in, um, which you wouldn't necessarily think is a police officer role. Um, some places have schools liaison officers, so it's building those trusts with the schools, working with schools, again, preventative and education uh, mixed together. And then we spend a lot of our time uh, dealing with missing people. Um, and that's an ever-increasing uh, thing that we spend a lot of time managing when people go missing um, or, as I mentioned earlier, mental health. Uh, a, a large amount of our workload is to deal with mental health and um, or ill mental health, I should say, really. Um, and um, the, the knock-on impact and the aftermath of that, whether that's someone who's suicidal or someone who's... Um, causing neighbourhood problems and, and different things like that. So there's a lot of problem solving, a lot of um, those kind of things that you wouldn't necessarily think are policing matters, neighbourhood disputes, um, the name but a few. So it's not all about putting the siren on and, and driving with the blue lights flashing through the centre of town looking very dramatic. There's actually an awful lot of stuff that is just about trying to make communities better, trying to make communities stronger. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. So uh, uh, almost that traditional style of neighbourhood policing, knowing what's going on in your community. Um, but actually what builds on that is if you know what's going on, you can help to tackle those problems and work with your communities. So there is lots of community engagement across all different sectors, um, which helps to build that trust, confidence in the police, helps to, in which then helps to increase reporting, uh, potentially some of those more hidden crimes such as domestic violence and um, those kind of things uh, and so that there's lots that goes on human trafficking again it wouldn't be necessarily something that we um, would be responding blue lights to but it's something that takes a long time um, working on and then you've also got frauds and the complex nature of some of these big investigations that are all done behind a computer nowadays. And, and so there's teams working on things like that, which is 
far outside of my understanding and a, a world that I wouldn't be able to um, kind of really comment too much on. But it it's a big amount of work that yeah. people wouldn't necessarily <laughs> understand as um, a normal policing role. And in some ways, I suppose, has increased and dramatically you know, we were saying earlier, change the way that the the job works, but it has increased the the stretching of resources and the pressure on resources because the there is the this reality of limited budget that is having to be managed by senior officers, uh, and it is there's never going to be enough money for the amount of stuff that we need you to do, is there? No, I don't think there is. Um, I think it's uh, a constant. Um, cycle of uh, increasing demand at the moment versus balancing the numbers and the workload. And um, I mean, I worked on a project called Faith and Police Together for the last two years. And, and a lot of that was around how churches can work with their police to help problem solve and tackle some of these community issues, um, which again would help reduce some of that demand on police, but not just police, on public sector and other partner agencies by working together and you know as a christian i really believe that jesus is the answer um as a, as a christian i believe that jesus comes to set those that are trapped in cycles of addiction and crime and poverty that quite often are not always but often are set by bad experiences of childhood or wrong mistakes and they get trapped in and actually, Jesus sets us free and he can transform lives. He can transform communities. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really passionate. And it's one of the things with CPA about building bridges between the police and the local Christian community uh, and helping to work together to tackle crime and, and social behavior and things like that in our communities. Because um, we, we can have a real key part to play as the church yeah. doing those kind of things. What about the firefighters, Andrew? Because I would imagine that there's again the image is jumping in the 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 wagon and the doors go up and the lights go on, the sirens go on, and away we go down the road. That would be the the sort of familiar image of what firefighters do. But like with the police, there must be a lot of behind the scenes stuff that you guys are involved in that actually requires far more than just the ability to know which end of the hose to plug in. Yeah, there's a lot of fire safety done now, home visits, you know, the vulnerable smoke alarms, fitting and, you know, carbon monoxide testings and things like that. But particularly in the COVID now, we've done a lot of vaccine clinics and centres we've been asked to help out. So we've provided manpower to man the car parks, be marshals, you know, deliver tests to places and blood samples and all sorts. So it's that's grown as well over the last sort of, 18 months really um, so there's a lot of welfare that goes on and does that come as a surprise for those who look to sign up i mean i know it's a rigorous process to become a firefighter but does it come as a bit of a surprise to them just how much of that sort of side of things is a part of the job and a part of the vocation i think it does to some uh, i think particularly in staffordshire they are quite uh, open about what your nature of your job is now. I think big problem, some, not a lot of problem, but in sort of quieter stations to new probation officers where they don't go out to many calls, I think that can, well, it does, it affects them sometimes thinking, well, 
do I actually do anything? Because sometimes it could go a day without without a shift or a call. Um, but, but then, in some of the country stations, obviously a lot of your a lot of the jobs are more technical and more difficult because yeah. obviously it's like climbing up the roaches or wherever to bring people down. So there's a variety. So yeah, sometimes they do think this isn't what I thought it'd be driving up and down, as you say, on blue lines, but it isn't. It's, it can be more of a welfare sort of people in need job, really. And we should point out for listeners who are not living in Staffordshire that the Roaches is a very popular climbing spot and very beautiful it is at all times of the year. I think I did see Marie go slightly green with envy there at the prospect of having a day where you weren't called out on a shift or called out to a job. But I keep referring to the work that gets done as a vocation. And I I wonder if that is still the sort of mindset that firefighters, police officers, and by implication and paramedics and those who work in the ambulance service as well i wonder if it's still what they have is it still seen do you think marie as a vocation could we describe being a police officer as a calling that's certainly how i see it um i i feel very much that this is a calling uh, first and foremost by god for me um i I joined as a young 19 year old and um, it, it was it was a job that I thought I was going to enjoy. It was going to be fun. It was going to be good to do um, and um, good for the community. But actually, as I got older, um, I became a Christian and, and then very much I felt I, I prayed and said, look, what do you want me to do? And uh, I felt him say policing is where he wants me. And so for me, yeah, it's very much a vocation. And. I think as a Christian, it sits so well within biblical values. You know, we get to help to set the oppressed free. We get to fight for justice for those who are um, not able to fight for themselves. We get to be peace bringers into places of chaos and confusion, to name but a few of the uh, ways that our faith really works out. And, And so I think... I think it has to be a vocation. If it doesn't become a vocation for people, then if it's not that calling, um, they're not going to stay in it for necessarily a very long time or they might not enjoy it as much. And would that be true with the fire service as well, Andrew? Yes, most certainly. Yes, I think it it is for me, obviously, personally as well. Um, And I work alongside a chap who isn't ordained, but he's very faithful and that, you know, he works for another church nationwide really um but yeah it's definitely because we want to help and we want to pass on and, and i think it's what i find is that i can sense it is within firefighters that they've got that real calling but again sometimes it's this we better not show that because you know it might be a bit embarrassing for me mm. but that's the key thing i try and do is try and encourage that to come out really and it has with some and what is the sort of mindset that makes for a good firefighter, Andrew? Calm. Um, I think certainly not scared of heights. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think it's it's being able – it's definitely a comradeship because obviously you, you are in a set team all the time and you spend all your 12 hours together with the same people. You know, you always go out on the job together and so – it, it's really classing everybody as a family and they are extended family. Um, and you can see that with things that they do outside of the work and 
So I think, yeah, it's definitely a a family organisation. Mm. And with it not being a massive fire service, like a not, it's not a city fire service, I think you find that more as well, that they stick a lot closer together because they live in the communities in most cases where they actually serve as, especially the retained firefighters, they live in their communities as well. So it's important for them to have a good community. Yes, indeed. And what about for, I mean, what's the what's the mindset of a good copper, Murray? Um, I think it. you've got to be able to push yourself through your comfort zones um, and be willing to step into the face of fear. Uh, I think that's a really important thing for um, any frontline response police officer. Um, you've got to be selfless in that sense and, and be willing to step out. I think you've got to you've got to have a good level of resilience about you um, because you are going to get knocked. You're going to get uh, verbally abused. You might even get physically assaulted. Um, so having a level of resilience is uh, and um, determination, I, I guess, is is a key mindset to uh, have as a police officer and, and wanting to do good, wanting to do right for the community, for the public, um, wanting to serve and see justice are all good mindsets for policing. And and uh, I suppose the similar sort of vein across both services, but is it essential that somebody comes to the job with that? Is Does that have to be the starting point? Or can that actually develop through training and through experience? Andrew? Um. I think it helps if you do come with that, but I think through experience and training, I think that naturally des- develops within you, really, I think. And that's the general feeling I feel from who I see, you know, because some, some will come in, I'm going to say, with all this macho sort of thoughts. and I'm going to be a firefighter. Sort yeah, of actually, and yeah. yeah, and it's all this and it's all that, but then they realise they've got to have that, like Mooney says, just they've got to have that. It's not all bluster and banging into places or wherever there's a lot of sort of care really a bit of a personal care of people and pastoral care that they naturally have to give to particularly if it's an older generation you know they've got to you know because you're dealing with people like the age of your grandma you know and as well and you've got to give that sort of tender care it's not it's not this macho yes all in this fancy uniform or whatever it's this so to just tender care and explain yourself more than just turning up, really. And that must be a massive... I mean, that those are t- two sides of a very big coin, Marie, aren't they? The, on the one hand, you know, the kick in the door in, they're having to chase somebody down, they're having to, to do the physical stuff. But then to to in the next moment be in a situation where you're comforting somebody who's a victim where you're supporting somebody who's very confused or shocked where you are you're trying to get not only get the best out of somebody to find out what's gone on but you're actually looking to get the best out of somebody in terms of helping them to be able to cope as well as they can with what they've experienced i mean that is an incredibly diverse skill set that is being utilized there yeah, it sure is. And, uh, you know, I think as uh, Andrew was talking, I, I just was really prompted and reminded about, you know, there are many people who don't join the job for the front line blue light aspect of it. You know, people regularly will join the job because they want to become detectives. They want to help 
people who are victims of child abuse or some of those more naturally caring roles um, from an investigative world and, and things as well. So there, there, there's such a broad scope. And as you say, but as a frontline officer, when you are literally one minute, you could be facing someone with a knife and then the next minute you are going to potentially something extremely tragic like a death of a a child or a death of a, a loved one or um something else in between they've just been really badly assaulted and you're trying to comfort them and then deal with the, the family or, or whatever else might be going on it is a um, very high emotional roller coaster um of what we deal with and it does yeah it does take such a, a big skill set of being able to communicate to control emotions and very difficult to switch off from that i mean i i said right at the beginning in my introduction very often our emergency services they are on the front line of crisis within our society they are dealing with things in many ways so the rest of us don't have to look at those things we don't have to be confronted with them I mean, as well as the physical toll of doing the job, the emotional toll, how you switch off when you get home, how you close your eyes and don't see those things that you have been confronted with all day. I mean, how how do you deal with that? Because I suspect that very often you close your eyes and you see them every jolly night. I think, yeah, you're right. It, it's difficult and different people have different coping mechanisms I guess and uh, you know for me um, obviously prayer is a key one and I've got people that I I have a regular um, prayer group of people that are my prayer warriors and I can ask them to be praying for me for different things and I take it to God but even then you know you still see things and you still um, have to process those things and um, I mean, we are getting better as a service for recognising the impact of trauma. So um, we've got different processes in place to help the trauma management. Um, there's lots of well-being support uh, available and that's ever growing. And um, so there are those kind of things. But that camaraderie that Andrew spoke about earlier as well, that's really important, debriefing with your colleagues about what you've seen what you've dealt with um, and having that kind of support and and for me as christian police association that's also been really valuable having not only having brothers and sisters in christ but also brothers and sisters who are our cops and um, because like andrew said about the fire service we're family and yeah. so with the christian police association you've got your two families kind of combining and and so when i speak to other members of the Christian Police Association and kind of ask for prayer and we talk about things and we'll pray for each other and, and be able to debrief it at such a deep level that, you know, church family doesn't always understand what it's like and what we've dealt with. Yeah, our, our CPA members do. And so uh, I think it requires lots of different mechanisms and options some people are better at it than others um and uh yeah i think it's it is a challenge um and it's one that a little bit like andrew was saying with the fire service police service can be the same that we don't need to talk about it we're, we're tough we'll um, we'll deal with it and um 
just bottle it up no. but we're understanding that um, mental health and the impact of bottling up is not healthy and so we we really are trying to get those processes in place and as a manager my responsibility is to make sure that I'm looking after my team so if I know that my team has been to a griefy job or something that's pretty traumatic then I will speak to each one of them I will put them through for a um, referral process to the trauma management if they want it and encourage them to get it if they say no um, and just let them know what's available to them to help them make sure that they're looking after themselves. And I suppose in some ways, Andrew, your role as a chaplain is to, to well, channel the, the way in which in society we have changed our attitudes about the importance of addressing mental ill health, the importance of recognising stress and trigger points and anxiety and those things that can come as a result of being in traumatic situations. We, we have come to see that, and I suppose that's, in a sense, what you do. You give people the opportunity to process that. Yes, and we do various things on, on stations and have an open session where people can they can just come to us as well when they want. We're on 24-hour call, which has been used a few times recently. Um, I, I've been out to an odd scene now and again, very rarely, fortunately, where it's a major scene where you know something bad has happened, that you're there to be there for people, to firefighters to come and talk to you and reassure reassure them that you know they're okay, really. Even if it's just a cup of tea, cup of tea, you know, it's anything you do. Um, it's it's been worse during the COVID because as chaplains we weren't allowed on stations um, where I would be in station weekly um, so it's been more of a bit of Zoom it's been a bit of phone calling which isn't the same no. as physically being with them face to face which is what was needed but gradually we are improving that again. At the same time, Andrew you know, you're the vicar and yeah. as as most church leaders will know, when stuff's going on, just in ordinary life, people get the God questions. You know, if God is love, why does he let this happen? If if God cares about people, how can people be so cruel to one another? All those sorts of things. I mean, I would imagine that, well, in both your environments, but I would imagine, Andrew, some of the, the things that the, the men and women you work with see, some of the tragedies they come across, some of the heart-wrenching situations of loss or of suffering they come across I, I would imagine there are times when they are very cynical about god and perhaps even very angry about god are they yes it's not as bad as you would probably imagine but yeah they, they are and it's just really trying to reassure them that this isn't god you know it is sort of human error it's human choices which is what god does give you you know, he gives you a path to follow and hopefully, obviously as Christians, if you follow that path, that's fine. But sometimes people do go slightly off track, really. And he's just trying to reassure them that it is, you know, not God's fault, but let's try and talk about it, pray about it together. And that seems to work. It's just a, it's not admitting it's God's fault, but it's not telling them that you're totally wrong. It's actually just generally talking things through that I find helps. And you find people are open to the idea of prayer in those situations? 
Generally, yes. Yeah. Um, not every situation. I think part of the experience as a chap when you get to work at, do you think prayer's actually going to work? You know, is that really the right time to say it or talk about it? You, you do find, you, you learn very quickly and body language from people as well yeah, sometimes. I can imagine. Don't, yeah. go down, don't go down that route, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think you, a lot of that's through experience of myself to, you know, um, and being experienced within the emergency services, working, and that, that does help me to think, well, no, let's let's stay away from that one for now. And what about um, you, Marie? Because, I mean, <laughs> you must be quite a, a unique situation for you, for the officers that, that are under you, to, to for them to realise that not only is the boss a Christian, but also, you know, she leads this group of, of Christian police officers and all that sort of... I mean, th there's no hiding from the, the question mark about... If there's a God, why on earth did this happen for you? Is there? There's, there's no getting away with it. You're 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 out and proud on this. Yeah, I certainly am. And um, yeah, no, I I think it is a question that does come up. And I've had some really good conversations around um, why this and what about that. And I yeah, I regularly get to share my faith with colleagues uh, above and below me. Um, and I will also offer to pray with people because um, at diversity events and things that I speak at both locally and nationally, I, I will regularly say, you know, as a Christian, the most loving thing I believe that I can do for someone is to pray for someone. Mm. And if you just told me that you're suffering or there's a problem or that you're sick or anything like that, um, I believe that Jesus answers prayer. Uh, and so... You know, I won't be offended if someone says no, but likewise, don't be offended if I ask. And so um, I will regularly offer prayer to people that are, are struggling and just say, look, you know, I'm a Christian. Can I pray for you? Some uh, some say yes and some say no. Um, and um, it, the, there's a real mix. You know, we, we do get that cynical. Um, we do a lot of lot of. Uh, Cops are quite cynical. Um, it's the nature of the job. Um, and uh, I, when I first became a Christian and, you know, I'd go to conferences and events and people would say, oh, I offer to pray for people. No one ever turns down prayer. So whenever I hear that now, my response is usually, you clearly haven't prayed for many police officers. <laughs> um, so, um, but yeah, I, I think it's, I'm there. I'm willing to answer questions and people are are asking and some some ask more than others and some want to get their head around it and and some potentially could be antagonistic but it yeah. doesn't matter um I, I i just love the fact that god's put me in a place where i get to be that salt and light and his witness in the police service as we draw our time to a close the last couple of years have been incredibly intense for a whole range of professions that's impacted a whole slew of workplaces within the emergency services there was a lot of clapping done for them there was a lot of noise to appreciate them but they've still had to get on with the job and i wonder with whether because for a while there was a sense that the morale it within our emergency services 
wasn't that brilliant as budgets were cut and as workloads were increased and as pressures seemed to pile on. Do firefighters, do police officers feel valued, do you think, by society? Andrew? I think they do in the main. I think they're well aware that they're not fully appreciated. And that was happening before COVID. Yes, I think, as you say, it has got worse in some cases. Um, but the general feel I've had, I think people have been, you know, we've had a lot of community support in the areas that I work in and they've been coming in and providing food if they haven't been able to get off the station, which has happened a few times. And, yeah, I think generally they are appreciated. I think you can always be appreciated a lot more. Um, I do think there's been an element of all oh, the firefighters are actually appreciated by the hierarchy. I think there's been odd conversations there. Um, but in general, I think, yes, in my area anyway, they've mm. been appreciated, really. What do you think, Marie? I think policing has been um, hammered over the last couple of years in, in a number of ways and, and some um, elements of that have had a really negative and detrimental impact for police officers. Um, I don't think that media reporting has been overly helpful in um, helping to make us feel appreciated. And I mean, I, I'm quite fortunate. I go to churches, I speak to churches and Christians and generally a lot of people within the church want to encourage and support uh, the police and so I get uh, a large amount of thanks compared to what some officers do and and so I think whilst I think actually the majority of the law-abiding public do value the police, um, I think it is something that officers on the ground don't necessarily always feel that yeah. and yeah. experience that because we don't generally deal with the majority of the law-abiding public. We are connecting predominantly with those that dislike us. Um, and um, if they are law-abiding, then quite often we're dealing with them in a tragic situation. And so we're um, not always going to be able to get the best of them and and they might not want to kind of associate police and what happened or or something like that so um i think it is a challenging one and i yeah i do think that it has had a negative impact over the last few years and we're not necessarily as appreciated as we should be so what could we pray is there one thing as we draw to a close that you would ask people to take on board to regularly pray for our emergency services. Andrew? Um, praying for their, obviously, continued safety, because um, I think that's very important, because you just don't know what, what's coming around the corner. Um, and just generally pray and appreciate that they are your fa extended family that keep you safe day by day. And I think people just need to, because they might not see a fire engine all the time, but they are there, you know, they're there when needed, and I think it's just to make it's, it's a prayer of awareness, really, that we are safe in our beds at night, if you like, that you've yeah. got 
three wonderful emergency services that without them, who knows what, you know, what we may be coming across. You're not wrong there. Marie? Um, yeah, I, I totally agree with what Andrew's just said, but I, I suppose on top of that, it would be for the well-being of our emergency services. We've talked about the, some of the trauma um, that they we all, and that includes the ambulance service experience, um, and that has an impact on people's personal lives. It's not, not just their working life. And so I think it, I would say praying for people's well-being, their protection over their health, both physically, mentally, and, and the knock-on impacts of that for their families. Here's the reality. As Andrew alluded to there, if it wasn't for the presence of three, in the vast majority of cases, excellent emergency services and dedicated men and women who are prepared to put themselves at risk to preserve us and to stand for what is right and to try and keep us safe and to maintain the standards of our society that we value, it would be horrendous to think what we had. It would be horrendous to think the nature of what society would be like. And certainly over the last couple of years, well, perhaps even going back more years than that, there have been a lot of questions asked about the way in which the powers that be, the politicians, the policy makers, the budget setters have viewed and been willing to really see and hear the voices of those who serve in our emergency services. It was good to applaud them during lockdown. It would be better to get them a real sense of being valued and supported and equipped to do their job as well as they can in the days that go ahead. I'm Paul Hammond. Take time to pray for your emergency services. Andrew, Marie, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And why not join me next week for another Life Issues? Good night. <laughs>